people on both sides feel the other side is violating moral standards. That's where the conflict comes from. And we need better crosstalk to understand what are the motives of people that we don't agree with. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At The Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at The Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for Order, Chaos, and Homo Sapiens. In this program, we talk about how our human nature can get in the way of the important job of maintaining our democracy. To explore this topic, we have two psychologists who disagree completely on politics, but they still keep talking and they somehow still remain friends. Shortly, you'll get a proper introduction to our guests, Dr. Paul Conway and Dr. Bo Weingard. I am so excited to share this program with you. I have been waiting for this one because I was actually at this event in person, and it's one of those discussions that I think about often in my everyday life because of some of the profound comments made by Bo and Paul. I was totally captivated right from the beginning, from the introductions, in fact, because in just a minute, you're going to hear how Bo Weingard was introduced as being a centrist with slightly conservative social opinions and slightly liberal economic views. All right. So at that time, when I was new to all this Village Square stuff, that completely blew my mind. Because I remember thinking prior to this program that maybe the answer to our political turmoil is a third party that is socially liberal and economically conservative. And I think I was feeling that way because that's sort of how I lean. And I was hearing a lot of friends say the same thing. So, you know, it must be a widespread opinion, right? Well, now after 45 Village Square programs, I've learned that people are much more complex than that, and we can't so easily be put into a box with millions and millions of Americans and expect them to see things the same way. Anyway, back to this program. I was so intrigued right from the beginning, and I found the arguments made on both sides quite fascinating. I can't wait for you to hear Bo explain himself. And I really can't wait for you to hear this whole civil debate style program with Paul and Bo. Before we get started, we'd like to give a huge thank you to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free. During this series, we're airing our new fall programs, plus some favorite past programs. So thanks for joining us on this journey. And thanks to Florida Humanities for making it possible. All right, on with order chaos, and homo sapiens. Back to facilitate is Village Square board member, the fabulous Jovita Woodrich. Here's Jovita. Thank you so much. Good evening, everyone. So glad that you all could be here this evening with us. Uh, I will be moderating this 
really fun and spirited uh, debate discussion between Bo and Paul, who are friends. And they are friends as in prior to Liz contacting them. I think that's very important. So have really hopefully enjoyed one another's company. And um, I had the pleasure of having dinner with them on Monday and was just fascinated. I do want to introduce both Bo and Paul. They, again, are just really extraordinary individuals. So Bo Weingard, to my far right, with the excellent throwback Adidas. Maybe not throwback for me, but it's throwback for me. He is a confused graduate student who, I didn't write this. <laughs> it's from my observations, he's not a confused graduate student who likes reading, writing, watching baseball, and mowing lawns. In 2007, his nearly almost ceaseless practice of switching majors every two years or so ended when he decided to pursue psychology. He is still not sure about the wisdom of that decision, but loves that he gets to study human behavior for a career. Although he sometimes claims like his hero Socrates to know nothing, he does actually know a few things. For example, he knows that political order is precious and should be cherished. And he also knows that Miguel Cabrera is the last baseball player to win the offensive triple crown. Oh. <laughs> he loves civil but provocative debate and somehow still thinks that the only question that really matters is, why can't we all just get along? He is <laughs> profound. It is a profound one. Politically, he identifies as a centrist with slightly conservative social opinions and slightly liberal economic views. That is allowed. You can have a mixture of things that make you who you are. Um, in other words, he belongs, he belongs to a party that doesn't exist and that would be more unpopular than the Congress if it did. So welcome, Bo, please, to the stage. Alrighty, so Paul, the Paul. Paul is a Canadian, which I just find darling. I don't know why, but it just tickles me. It makes me very happy. Um, he moved to, he's a Canadian who has moved to Florida by way of Germany, right? Um, he still thinks hockey is better than football. Um, he's head of the FSU Moral and Social Processing Lab, studying the psychology of morality. Um, he's still learning to imitate a Southern accent and does not understand grits just yet. His cat, Claire, always gets her way, especially when it comes to belly rubs. This is important. Politically, he identifies as fairly left, though at times he's held other opinions. And he has held many odd jobs before his academic career, including call center person, rug salesman, member of the Coast Guard, and ice cream truck driver. So the ones that go around to the kids in the neighborhood, oh, it's tremendous. Great. So please welcome Paul to the stage. So my first question, gentlemen, is how is this project of American democracy going as far as you're concerned? <laughs> because it is in a lot of ways still an experiment. Very poorly at this moment. <laughs> and why is that? I think there was a book by Charles Murray written sometime around 2013 called Coming Apart, which I think has proved prophetic that, that is, Americans are coming apart in a variety of ways. Um, class lines, for example, economic lines, inequality is growing. 
culturally, I think it's probably the most important seam or fissure in our society. That is, there's a growing divide between educated people, probably most of us in this room were hyper-educated people and less educated people, and society more and more favors educated people. Society is more complicated than it used to be. It's hard to make a decent wage if you are um, not, you know, you don't have a college degree. And culture itself is sort of more, I think it's aimed more at the educated people. So, for example, I just think of television programs. We have The Wire, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad. I'm trying to think of all these television programs that are popular. They're a lot more sophisticated and intimidating than, let's say, Leave it to Beaver or uh, <laughs> I Love Lucy. These things, I think, are perceived as alienating to those people who don't participate in that more, I don't want to make a value judgment, but I guess elevated culture. And I think the people who don't participate in that culture also feel sort of condescended upon. And in some ways, this is why I believe we have Donald Trump, because he may be boorish and he may be rash and immoral, but at least he, t he sticks it to those elites who think they know better than we do. So that's, I think the cultural component does matter more than the economic component because the cultural component is immediate. I think about it like when you were in high school, you remember the, well, I wasn't an athlete, quite obviously. <laughs> and you remember the feeling of getting harassed by one of these popular people in high school. It's a very irritating feeling. And if somebody had come along and said, I'm going to stick it to those people for you, I wouldn't have been very discriminating about who that person was. I would have felt good that he was on my side. So I, I think that's part of the reason we have Trump, which I view as a disaster, even though I could vote Republican. I have it in my life, but say John Kasich, I would be happy to vote for. But I view the Donald Trump presidency as a divisive disaster. Bo, everyone. <laughs> so, statements. so again, thank you so much for that. And I think it's really significant to highlight the cultural versus um, economic divides that we have. Inequality just has so many layers to it. And I think sometimes we, we stratify to just one or two of those, put those in our silos. All right, Paul, how is this experiment of American democracy going these days? Well, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you, Bo. Uh, I don't think the real problem is the cultural divide. So I'm pretty sure that people who aren't like hyper-educated or over-educated or whatever, they're still like the wire. You know, I think a lot of people see themselves in those kinds of elite shows or whatever. I don't think it's the cultural component that's the core problem in our society right now. Rather, I would vote it's for the economic. It's the economic issues. And specifically, I think it's the growing economic inequality that's the core problem that we as Americans and even as non-Americans like Canadians also face. People around the world are facing this issue more than they ever have in the past, right? So we are approaching this world where the people who have things have billions of dollars worth of things. And then there's the rest of us over here making thousands of dollars. I am personally a thousandaire. I don't want to brag, right? But <laughs> some people even make millions of dollars. And if you're one of those people whose income is somewhere between, you know, $10,000 and $10 million, you're not the problem. You're actually part of the solution in this society. 
It's the people who are making hundreds of millions or billions of dollars a year. Those people, they do contribute some things, but do they contribute 300 times more than the average worker in the factory? I'm not convinced that they do. So I, I see this siphoning of wealth that's occurred over the past 50, 70, 100 years. There used to be a lot more, uh, like in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the wealthiest people in America were somewhat wealthier than the poorest people. And today, and growing more over time, the wealthiest people in America and in the world are exponentially wealthier than the rest of the people. And that's created this world where everybody feels like they're getting shafted. Everybody feels like they're getting the raw end of the stick, no matter how much of stick they're actually getting. So I heard two, I think, a moral argument in there and then a descriptive argument. That is an argument about how the world should be, and then an argument about what's causing divisions in society. I think if you look at Trump voters, for example, to take that as an example of divisions in society, income didn't really predict voting for Trump. What did predict voting for Trump was education. That is, less educated people were more likely to vote for Trump, which suggests that the appeal of, of Trump was probably more cultural than economic. And I think the, the reason I don't think that economic matters as much is because I'm not sure that it's so obvious to people. Like, yes, Mark Zuckerberg makes, I don't know, enough to buy me one billion times over, but I don't even know where he lives. I have no clue what his lifestyle is like. I can't even fathom it. What I can fathom is when he gets on television and talks about how I'm a localist, I'm a bigot, maybe because I'm in favor of restrictive immigration policies, etc. Those things are much more immediate in a person's life. And I think that's, I'm, that's not to say that the economic inequality doesn't matter at all. I just think cultural inequality is more potent. It's more obvious to people. And therefore, that's, I think, more of the cause. The moral argument, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about economic inequality. It's a very difficult question. So, one, one thing before we move on. It's not the amount of money you make, and income is the absolute wrong variable to be measuring, because the very wealthiest people in the world are making $1 a year, right? They're actually, what they've got is $300 billion in stock options. That's where their wealth comes from. It's not how much money you make, it's how much money you feel you make compared to what you feel you deserve, and this impression that there's people out there that you feel are making more than they deserve. So Kim Kardashian, maybe you don't know where Mark Zuckerberg lives, but everybody knows too much about Kim Kardashian. And it's that comparison to these vivid and salient social comparison targets that we have, these people in our lives where we say, why is she famous? Why is she worth hundreds of millions? Why am I not? What's the difference? And some people think, well, I want to become that. And other people think, well, the whole world is rigged against me because some people can have that and I can't. What's wrong with the world? And they're upset about this. And then you get Trump. So if you're going to bring that back to kind of where we are politically right now in terms of democracy, I know, Bo, you just mentioned a little bit about Trump voters, whether it's the, the economic component, the perceived um, what I deserve versus what I'm actually making, or it's the cultural component and education. How is that affecting, and, and Paul, will start with you, how is that affecting specifically where we are in terms of ideology and we are in terms of divisiveness? Divisiveness? Dad, SAT words in the car on the way to school, 10th and 11th grade. Excellent. Um, in terms of just where we are now. Right. So, I mean, obviously we were coming 
into the age of Trump out of eight years of Obama, right? And so there were all these historic events that had occurred in American political history that were unprecedented. Nobody had ever seen a black president before. And it's easy to get misled by the surface details of American politics. They're like, well, there's a black president, so I guess racism is over, we're all equal now. I mean, I was in Boston a little while ago, and I was watching this group, this like religious group of these black dudes who were like, the day is coming for the white people of this country who have ruined our communities for hundreds of years. And they were sort of pointing at me as they were saying this, and I was listening carefully from a safe distance. And at some point, this like white guy just walks in front of us and he just shouts to them, well, we're all equal now, right? And they were like, whoa, whoa, like we need to talk about that. And so the important thing is to consider progress has been made for a lot of people. And some people, if they had a lot of power in 1950 or 1960 or 1980, where they would have been the center of power at that time, they feel there's this erosion of power. And maybe they never would have had power to begin with, but they feel like they would have had the chance to gain that sort of power. And they feel like that chance has been eroded by the gains made by other people in this country. And people hear these statistics like eventually in, in 2050, there's going to be a Hispanic majority in this country or whatever it is. So people feel like the old ways of being in this country, the old ways, the old social structures are changing and there's a feeling that because those changes are occurring, there's a danger of them being too fast, too much, too soon, too far. There's this eroding of power that's very upsetting and concerning to people. And there's this concern of where the country, what will, what will it look like? Where will we be headed? What will America be in the year 2050? And in the face of these concerns, it can be comforting to kind of turn back to the way things used to be, or at least this idea of 1950s America, the make America great again idea, right? That becomes more attractive when the, the future seems less certain or less clear. I think this is probably my biggest area of disagreement with Paul, which is, I, I think, a, so I don't totally get, disagree about the descriptive claim. I think I don't have the same moral judgment about the wanting to keep things as they are, or maybe even a nostalgia for the past. I think that's totally understandable. I, I don't even think it's immoral. I don't know if it's the best thing to want. Like, that's an empirical question, but I, I think it's really understandable. And I think, I, I want to make clear, by the way, that although I regard Trump as a disaster, I don't have... I'm not morally opposed to Trump voters. I, I understand why someone would vote for Trump. And I think the hostility, again, I'm going back to my cultural divide. I think the hostility that cultural elites have toward people who are concerned about, say, changing demographics, it's, it's bad. It's uh, because it's understandable to want your community to look the same way it did 30 years ago. It doesn't mean it's good, but it's natural, and it's possibly morally justifiable. I think it's at least legitimate, and that we should treat it as a legitimate view about the world and discuss it, not call somebody a racist or a bigot or whatever. And I think, not coincidentally, one of the biggest drivers probably of Trump's uh, rise to the presidency was immigration, right? I mean, he came out initially with his speech in which he said, things that I consider kind of disgusting, but there a lot of people had real concerns about immigration 
that weren't getting addressed by either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And from, say, 1980 to 2000, 2000, like eight, let's say, was when I think immigration basically got to a, a standstill. The demographics of this country changed really quickly. 13 million people came into the country from Latin American countries. That's a rapid change. It's understandable that people would be worried about that. It affects people's communities. It changes the way people live. So if you go to Southern California now, it's it's really different from what it used to be, right? And again, maybe that's good, but we have to have a conversation about that without morally chastising people who are concerned about that. Okay, so it's interesting. You, you've used this term moral twice okay and so i didn't really see it as making a moral argument i i was really trying to be descriptive and i agree that it is important and i think liberals often don't value the concerns that more conservative people have about these issues enough but if, if you weren't making moral claims i'm sorry it's just that well it's, i'll, I'll it's make almost, them now okay <laughs> it's it, notice that it's almost impossible to use terms for conservatives that don't sound somehow demeaning, like parochial, local, not globalist. You know, they're almost morally loaded because I think the mainstream narrative in our society is just cosmopolitanism is good. Uh, If you're against, I, I won't say open borders, but if you want a reduction in the amount of immigrants that come into this country, that's automatically bad. So when we went to dinner, we actually talked about this. There was a New York Times op-ed by Russ Dowdit, who's a conservative at the New York Times, but, you know, like a pretty centrist conservative. And he wrote an article called, like, The Necessity of Stephen Miller. So if you don't know who Stephen Miller is, he's kind of in the Trump administration, sort of a notorious restrictionist, immigration restrictionist. That is, he wants lower numbers of immigrants coming into the country. And Dowdit basically said, look, he deserves a seat at the table. We have to have this discussion, and we need someone who's a restrictionist at the table. I looked on Twitter, and the number of people who were saying that the New York Times had turned into a white supremacist newspaper was just outlandish. The New York Times, right? This is a pretty leftist newspaper, right? Uh, I saw one person had tweeted... It's become a white nationalist outlet, and it had like 4.6 thousand likes. I know this is just Twitter, but it does suggest something that we're not even allowed to have these conversations about a lot of the problems that are ripping the country apart without being called names. And when people get called names for expressing what they consider legitimate moral concerns, they get angry. And when they get angry, somebody comes along and says, I'm not going to be politically correct. I'm with you, and I hate this political correctness. And even though Trump voters, for example, would say, yeah, of course, he's an idiot and he's kind of like rude, at least he's on my side. At least he's not judging me for these things, you know? So that's what I think is the big big thing there. I I will agree that if you didn't imply anything moral in your statement, I take back what I said to you. Okay, not yet. All right. (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm going to go to kind of a next a next thing with that, which is this idea of tribalism. We hear about that term, I think, more and more in our culture. And on Monday, I was sort of framing it as a, a fairly, a word with a number of different connotations. So when I say, these folks are my tribe, 
typically that's a really positive thing. These are, these are the people who support me. They love me. We have, we're like-minded in this really productive way. And then there's also the way that we talk about tribalism that is, has sort of a negative connotation, which is this in-group, out-group sort of a way of looking at things. For me, that term has been helpful in my conversations with people about kind of where we are in terms of our um, very deep divide, which is often not necessarily breadth in our country, but the depth of the divide that we have um, as neighbors. But we ended up having a really inter- interesting discussion about what tribalism actually is. And that is one key thing, kind of Bo is talking about this in terms of the terms we use to describe people, is that there are a variety of definitions oftentimes when you are having a discussion. So if I use the word tolerance with someone, they could have a completely different understanding of what tolerance means. And then we really end up being ships passing in the night because those connotations and those meanings differ for us significantly. I struggle with that word being a negative word, for example, tolerance, when it comes to race issues. But in other circumstances, I see it as something that is beneficial and that some that, that people have we have a need for in terms of dialogue. So what exactly does tribalism mean? You guys are sort of sharing some about it in terms of having two kind of polar ways of talking about people, people who have, people who have not. One of you mentioned somewheres versus anywheres, inclusivity versus exclusivity, but that is oversimplified in some ways, tribalism is. And I'd love for you to talk about that and also the idea of in-group, out-group, because I think a lot of people are using those terms to describe where we are, and maybe there's more nuance that we need to have an understanding of. Oh, it's my turn. Okay. So a lot of people I've noticed are familiar with Jonathan Haidt and the basic ideas in his work. Academic crush. <laughs> that he's dreamy intellectually. Continue. So I've seen him talk a number of times, and I like his work. I teach his work in my classes, but I don't agree with everything he says, and I think he's oversimplifying. And one of the crucial oversimplifications that I think he's doing is it's easy when you read his work to sort of get caught up in this idea, well, you've got liberals and what they care about. You've got conservatives and what they care about. And liberals are destined to always think conservatives are bad, and conservatives are just destined to always think liberals are bad. And that's just how it is. And it's sort of a hopeless, no-win situation, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And I find that disheartening. And I don't really buy that part. I think human beings can deal just fine with believing that other people are members of other tribes. We don't really have a problem with that. And going back historically thousands of years, people can deal just fine with the idea that they're part of a group and other people are part of other groups. In fact, there's work showing that most intergroup prejudice is really about loving your own group and not so much about hating the other group, only in rare cases. But when it comes to the perception of morality, people have a very strong feeling that all humans everywhere must abide by moral norms. So, for example, most people think it's wrong to punch babies. I hope you would agree. It seems like it's a bad thing. Don't punch babies. Right. And here's the thing. If you found out that the people in the next room over, they were punching babies over there because they thought it was fine, how many people would be okay just letting them continue? No, you'd, you'd feel you have to do something about it. One person So it was like, I've got it. Right. You guys, you're just delayed. It's a hypothetical. Don't worry. Okay. So when people feel that there are moral standards, people feel that there is no excuse for any human social group on the face of the earth anywhere in all of history to violate those standards. And what 
different people in different groups. It's not just that they think that there's another tribe, but they think that the beliefs of the other tribe, the way that they're going about their achieving their social program, people on both sides feel the other side is violating moral standards. That's where the conflict comes from. And we need better crosstalk to understand what are the motives of people that we don't agree with and why do they want this policy? And if we can understand why they want the policy, if we can have real one-on-one conversations, we realize they're not evil, they actually have good motivations, then we can start to understand them as actually morally decent human beings and have some crosstalk and, and get somewhere. But Twitter and Facebook don't lend themselves well to that kind of nuance. I actually couldn't agree more with what you said. And I, what? I, <laughs> and I absolutely think that this goes back to my theme of the night, which is this cultural divide, because I think what happens is liberals, generally speaking, view somebody who thinks that you should restrict the amount of immigrants coming to the country, let's say. They think that's sort of akin to punching a baby. It's just how could you possibly do that, right? That's a heinous opinion. And I don't even want to have a conversation with you. You're a white nationalist. You're a bigot. You're some name that's like the outsider. And in fact, to even participate in that discussion hurts my morality because I'm getting sort of like, I'm contagion is seeping into me from your hideousness, right? And I think that is just an enormous. And you were, you were saying, you're kind of as a conservative saying this. As a social, as a, a weird kind of social conservative. Right. Yes. I, I will say, uh, I, w- I want to say this ahead of time. Any opinion that I have is subject to empirical review. If somebody gives me evidence, <laughs> I'm happy to change it. I have it all on a continuum from, say, 10% to 90%. So, as in, for example, I am currently an immigration restrictionist. I think we should probably take five, 10 years try to assimilate the people we have and see how that works out because I think that it causes a lot of cultural contention and division. I've tried to have this discussion with a lot of academic friends and as you may or may not know, most academics are pretty liberal, right? And Paul, to his credit, which is why I love debating him, he just debates me and pounds the table a little bit. He doesn't call me names. A lot of people will call you names. It's not even a position that you can have as a decent moral human. I think what Paul was saying about getting at the motives is absolutely right. It's crucial, but I think I could be persuaded otherwise. I tend to think that right now the liberal narrative is sort of ascendant and that there's more moral judgment coming from the left than from the right right now in mainstream Mm. society. I know Paul will disagree, so let me just make one more point. I've heard a lot of people say this. Now, this is anecdotal. I I understand that. It was harder for me to come out as a conservative than just about anything. It's like a disease to say this in academia, where I come from, right? It's like you're admitting you're like a flawed human. I'm a conservative. Oh, no. Uh, and I, I think that's really true because I, I think there's just moralizing everything from affirmative action to immigration to uh, policing, for example. And these are obviously moral questions, but you have to be able to think 
this person disagrees with me, but I bet they care about humans too, and they have a perspective that's worth listening to. So, yeah, I guess we do agree more than we're supposed to. Yeah, big mistake. <laughs> this, is, this is not rigged. They just happen to agree on this is great. So, one thing, one reason I think people are moralizing so much, and I, I do disagree, I think moralizing comes at least as much from the right as from the left. And there's a lot of people on the right who think that liberals are these dirty, sordid, you know, violating American values, you know, throwing the country full of people who shouldn't be there or don't assimilate correctly, which uh, I also don't agree that assimilation should be the goal, especially coming from Canada, where we, we think assimilation and this melting pot idea is wrong and multiculturalism is maybe yeah, a healthier okay. strategy. To, to, to be fair, Canada has how many immigrants from like around the world? Proportionally more than America does. Okay, but what's the de- what is the demographic composition of Canada? I mean, we've got some English, some French, some okay. Chinese, some Caribbeans. Mostly European though, right? I, th- I think that's important. I mean, okay, in the 50s, yeah, but not today. The vast majority today comes from China and other Asian countries. You're going to Google it. Okay, he's going to fact check. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I would put money on it. Okay, but what I really wanted to say was, I think one reason, so talking about this idea that it's not the belief that other people are in other tribes that's the problem. It's the believing that their goals and aspirations are fundamentally immoral is the real problem. And I think the reason we have this is because people come from different starting assumptions about what is the cause of events and Who's responsible for things? So there's some great work done by my friend Mark Brandt, who's at the University of of Tilburg in the Netherlands, but he's an American. And he had a 2012 study where he had a a nationally representative sample of Americans, liberals and conservatives. And he asked them about the housing crisis, the 2008 housing crisis. And it basically, his question came down to, should the government spend a lot of money to help homeowners who lost their homes during the crisis? And effectively, most liberals felt, yeah, the government should help those homeowners because the way they saw the situation was these large banks who should have known better knowingly set up these loans designed to fail and then taught, like, found people who couldn't pay them back and they knew they couldn't pay them back and they targeted those people, gave them bad loans, made buckets of money and then lost buckets of money. So it's the bank's fault. The banks caused the crisis. It's not the homeowner's fault. It was a social, structural, this society level phenomenon and individuals shouldn't be held to account for what these large companies were doing. But conservatives in the same sample were thinking, well, these individual people have a responsibility not to take money that they know they can't pay back. They have a responsibility not to sign a contract without reading all the fine print, realizing that the interest rate's going to skyrocket in two years, knowing they can't afford a 12% mortgage because they signed up for a 5% mortgage. So these individuals have violated the, the contract they have with America to be responsible individuals and they got themselves into trouble and therefore no, the government shouldn't bail out these people. They should have known better. So basically you've got this individual bootstraps, people are responsible for themselves versus this social structures can have an impact on people. We should be forgiving. And these different starting assumptions led them to look at the exact same situation and blame different people for it. Right. And if they just realized the starting assumptions of the other side, they'd see everybody wants banks that work responsibly and individuals that take responsibility. But 
how do you resolve that in terms of what the government policy should do? And if you, the policy comes down on the opposite side of what you think is right, you think, those jerks, how dare they? It's so immoral that they would be encouraging this bad behavior. And then you're upset. I absolutely agree with that. Where I think there's a distinction between conservative moralizing on this issue and liberal moralizing on, let's say, we'll stick with immigration, is conservatives might say, that's wrong, how dare you, we want lower taxes, or um, the, the individuals who took the loan should be held responsible. Um, what was my point? <laughs> it was going somewhere profound, I can tell you that. Um, whatever, whatever my point was exactly there, they... In that debate, though, you don't get excluded for good from good company for having a divergent opinion from a conservative or a liberal. On immigration, you get kicked out of good company if you have the wrong opinion. So again, the let's say the New York Times, like how many people know the National Review? It's a conservative magazine. So the, the National Review, for example, they might argue against the New York Times for promoting economic liberalism, let's say, they wouldn't say that the New York Times are Ku Klux Klan members the way that these people were saying it was a white nationalist outlet, right? So I do think there's a distinction there. You can have a, a vociferous debate about who's more responsible for the economic crisis of 2008 and on, and no, I don't think many people call you names that have the sort of force of the term racist or bigot or white nationalist or sexist, right? Those are terms that are used often by liberals and they have a lot of power. And one thing that they do is they end a discussion because now instead of talking about the policy that I prefer, I'm talking about how actually I'm a decent person and I have friends from this place and that place, so I'm not a bigot, right? Uh, also, I check... My best friend's black. <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. My best friend's from Mexico or whatever. <laughs> um, Canada's demographics are about 93% European. Yeah, but yeah, yes. Okay, so I think that's important because the United, <laughs> the United States in 20... 60 between 2050 and 2065 there's not going to be a majority racial group in the united states now that might be a good thing i i personally like that but that's going to cause some serious friction and if we don't accept that and give up this platitude that diversity is always good and that it's like easy and it enriches us all and accept that it's really difficult and it causes friction i think we're headed for some serious trouble and that's why i'm uh, immigration restriction is because I think we, no country to my knowledge has successfully done what we are trying to do. And that's awesome, but it's also cause for concern and caution. I think a judicious person would say, okay, let's see what's going to happen. We already, we just got Donald Trump, right? To me, that's one of the worst things that's happened to our country since the Civil War. Well, Great Depression, whatever, you can don't hold me accountable for that statement, but <laughs> it's a bad thing in my opinion, and I think we're going to see more of that, and I don't like that. So that's why I'm cautious about that issue. So I did want to, we will go to the audience now if anybody, anyone have a question or comment right now? This gentleman over here too, okay. It seems to me that the problem with restriction of immigration is not restriction per se, it's President Trump's preference for people who don't come from S 
countries, people who are dark-skinned, now that is racist. So I think we blur the, the conversation if we don't acknowledge that. Restriction, reform, is one question. But reform that is targeted toward black and brown-skinned people is morally unacceptable, in my opinion. So we'll do another, and then you can, guys can kind of answer both questions. In, um, you're probably fully aware that democracy, which was a starting position of the whole discussion, is something which has a life cycle. The Greeks already have defined it takes two or three hundred years before it changes. This country was founded on a Judeo-Christian base. Where's God today in this community? Why is this divide always between liberals and conservatives, whereas any person in itself has both? So why do we group ourselves in, in something which is in every person? I'll take a shot at the first one, and then maybe we can get to the second one. I, 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 I do not have a lot of sympathy for Donald Trump's rhetoric. In fact, as an immigration restrictionist, Donald Trump is one of the worst things that's ever happened to me. Because if you're going to be an immigration restrictionist, you have to use really cautious, judicious, accepting language, which is exactly the opposite from what Trump does. And in fact, there's good evidence that Trump sort of like has a reverse Midas touch. That is, if he espouses support for a position, the population disagrees with it. So he's doing a lot of harm to the the conservative position on immigration, I would say. On the this, this second part about the morally unacceptable, I think that's a really... I wouldn't use language about crap hole countries. I think it's a really tough issue because it is definitely the case that it's easier for certain groups of people to assimilate than other groups of people. And there's a lot of evidence on this. So Norwegians, for example, probably have an easier time assimilating into the United States than people from other countries. And that's just a fact. I don't think you should discriminate based on skin color. I would discriminate based on ability to assimilate and what do they add to the population here. Although I think there are moral arguments for other immigrants and that's a tough issue. So I don't, I don't want to like shortchange it. It's a really tough issue. I don't necessarily think a preference for a certain type of immigrant, as long as it's not profiling skin color, but say high education immigrants, for example, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. And, and I'll say just real quickly that I think part of what makes that this difficult is that you could be, like you mentioned before, you could be a restrictionist, but the presumption is that your belief or perspective is about excluding brown people. The people will extrapolate out yeah. what they've heard and all of a sudden you're a racist, even though you have a very different opinion about uh, immigration reform than that than other people do or what they've heard on Twitter. Right, and I, I actually, I think that's a good point, which is there aren't a lot of eloquent, articulate defenders of immigration restrictionism that show up on like mainstream media outlets, right? So if you had somebody who could really make that case, and there are people out there, right? I think that would do a lot of good for restrictionists because people would see, oh yeah, they're not just racist. They actually have a logic behind this. They're basically, as I see it, social conservatives who think that social order is really difficult 
and that it's often difficult to assimilate people, and we should be careful about that. Not that we shouldn't do it, but rather that we should be careful and do so slowly. And right now, say from 80 to 2000, we didn't do it slowly or carefully, and I think we're bearing the sort of toxic fruits of it right now. Okay. So... I think I have a different take on this immigration issue, and I want to come back to your point as well. But first, I think maybe it takes an outside America perspective to think of it as America owes the world immigration, okay? And here's the reason. If you go to any country on earth, there's a McDonald's there. Okay, if you go to any country on earth, there are American companies there making money. If you go to any country on earth, there is this sense that there is a global elite that the people who are the local people in the country have lost out opportunities to these English-speaking American people who showed up there and said, okay, we're gonna, we have this business, we're going to run this business now, shut down all your local chip shops because we've got McDonald's opening up everywhere. There's this Walmart is opening up in all these places. And when Walmart opens up a store, the local mom and pop shops close down. And that actually has a negative effect on the economy. People lose good-paying jobs and get, they get replaced with minimum wage jobs. So a lot of people around the world see America as coming into their countries and into their communities and reducing the wealth of the people in those communities and taking that wealth and sending it back to where Sam Walton lives, right? So there's a global feeling that America is taking things away from the rest of the world. And I know there's an alternative argument. You could say, well, they wouldn't have had these things if Americans didn't show up. I think there's some of balance of both of those things going on. But I think if you look around the world in the way that many people who aren't American look at America, they think of America as taking more than it gives. And, and, and then America takes all this money and builds this shining castle on the hill, this Camelot vision of the future of American society. And all these people around the world say, for generations, people have come here and taken away things from my community. Can't I go there and try to help build that society and make it better than it was? Right. And so if you're a local person, if you're from Kentucky, you've lived in Kentucky your whole life, maybe you think about life in terms of what's Kentucky and how is it different from Tennessee. But when you live in Germany or Sri Lanka or something, everyone knows who the American president is. How many people can name the Canadian prime minister? Just out of curiosity. Hey, good job. Is it, is it because it's of the because abs? It's easy on the eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So um, Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, was prime minister back in the 70s. And he had a great saying that um, living with America is like sleeping with an elephant. Even a gentle nudge can have drastic consequences. Okay? And it's true. If America changes its softwood import luxury tax on what Brazilian softwood or hardwood lumber is doing, Canada usually follows suit within a few months. Because whatever America is doing, Canada has to do in order to keep their economy going. You know, and the whole rest of the world feels like this. Whatever America is doing, they are forced to kind of match their policies or set a, a, an opposing stance. And so there's this feeling around the world like America is getting all these benefits. It's kind of like the captain of the football team. And if you want to be the captain of the football team, if you want to be the leader, you need to earn that respect by treating the rest of the people on the team well. And right now, America doesn't look like it's playing nice with the rest of the world. It looks like it says, I want to take my ball and go home. So... So I would love to address this gentleman's comment and then also just kind of how that connects again back to this tribalism, this in-group, out-group, because Mm -hmm. the idea is, yes, maybe people are okay with the reality that there are multiple groups or multiple tribes, Mm -hmm. but what you're saying about really having a, a, a strong sense that there's just rampant moral depravity because of what 
that other group thinks still to me seems like in group out group. Mm-hmm. You are not in you you don't see things the way that my group does, and so therefore you were out. So it seems like the same sort of thing, but again, over generalizing groups seems to be a very natural thing, although there are variations within each person. So how do we reconcile that? I got a thing. So you were asking essentially why like everyone has some liberal and some conservative aspects or some values or some goals. So why can't we sort of align better? And I would argue your car can also drive in forward and reverse, but it can't do both simultaneously. And the way that I like to think about liberalism and conservatism is they really boil down to your vision for society and your vision for what policies we should have to get there. And just like your car can drive in both reverse and forwards, but it can't do both at the same time, the same way that you think about policy can really ultimately boil down to ultimately one. So the way that liberals tend to think about the world, I think, tends to be this vision of what could the future be? What are the potential possibilities for the future and how can we make a good future? And what conservatives tend to do is they tend to, instead of looking forward to this like technological, multicultural, whatever idea, they tend to look back into the past and say, where have we come from? What are the important values that we've had? What things have brought us to this point in history? What are the successful things in society that we've needed, like church and marriage and community and family? What are the important values that have allowed us to get to stay alive to now? And we don't want to just get rid of those quickly. And there can be this concern that changing something like marriage, right? So if you change marriage to like gay marriage, right? So now marriage is not one man, one woman. Well, what what some people feel you're doing is you're taking the institutions that got us to now and you're changing them. Possibly if you change them too quickly, you might wake up tomorrow and realize you don't recognize your own society. You can't tell how we got there. It's like this dystopian nightmare future. I think that's the conservative nightmare. The liberal nightmare is they'll wake up tomorrow and everything will be so similar to how it was in the past that they haven't made any progress at all. And this shining future city, this multicultural technological marvel that we're hopefully moving towards, that will fail and we'll just end up back where we were in 1950. You are, you are actually bring the divide into the organ, in the community rather than taking it away. So can you clarify in what sense are conservatives progressive? In what way? So you say conservatives are as progressive as liberals. I am a conservative. Uh I am a conservative, and that's very obvious. My whole life, being in different countries and different cultures, has always been being progressive in what I do in my job, starting from an existing position to make it better in the future. Consistently, I changed my job 14 times. I did major projects all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I will always say I have many colleagues which acted exactly the same way, not in the academics, but in the business. Mm-hmm. But so, sorry, just mm-hmm. one quick point. So I, I totally buy that conservatives can think this way about sort of like projects and how can I change this business situation. But when you think of the nature of society and what the ideal society would be, do you think more about the past or do you think more about the future? And and we'll allow that just for now to be... May, may I make a comment to Paul's comment? Okay, so 
my conservatism is actually based on an appreciation for the progress that we've made in Western civilization, right? That's actually why I'm a conservative is be- well, social conservative, I guess, is because I realize that we've made such brilliant progress that I want to keep doing whatever we're doing right. So there's a book, for example, by Steven Pinker, I don't know how many people know him, called The Better Angels of Our Nature, about the remarkable decline in violence across human history. And you look at that and you think, we're doing something right. Homicide rates are incredibly low compared to what they were 200 years ago. So I think that kind of conservatism, you want to make the future better, but you also don't want to change things that are working. Uh, rule of law, constitution, etc. These things have done a pretty good job of preserving our society and actually helping us move forward. And, and I'll just throw out real quickly that I think I know that I have grown in terms of my understanding of what labels are. So when I was 18, what I thought a conservative and what I thought a liberal was, was pretty narrow and typically had just a couple issues that were attached to it and maybe just a few kind of moral concepts, things like that. And it's grown and evolved over time, just like the the parties have or the ideologies have. But when Paul, I think, says something like he did and uses a metaphor like that, it's helpful for people who don't have, who don't study this, who don't spend a lot of time reading varying types of, um, you know, whether it's news or what have you. It gives them another way to have a discussion about that particular label. So as much as this may be something that is overarching, liberals are kind of this way and, and conservatives tend to be kind of this way. A, there is an ideology behind these things that does that, that does have an actual meaning for people. But also, that helps me to expand my perspective and understanding of what that particular ideology is. And that's something that is extremely important because we think of ideology in terms of politics, in terms of issues only. So these are the things that liberals believe in. These are the things that conservatives believe. We don't talk about it the way that Paul just described it. And I think it's really critical for us to have varying ways to discuss what that actual ideology means. And Liz, you said you have a couple questions. You or both of you could comment on sort of the notion that media political parties exacerbate the divide, um, get political gain from it, fuels the death of compromise, and essentially turn most solutions into, um, to your point, A or B, uh, one or the other, and that we're, um, it, you know, we're sort of deep into the confirmation bias on a lot of our thinking in this. Um, in addition, sort of tagging another question on to the notion that, you know, we've talked a lot about the two-party system. Do you guys have any opinion about a third party and how what you can do to maybe from your psychological perspective to sort of decrease some of these problems? Yeah, so I, I have two comments on that at least. Uh, one thing to note is actually the sort of godfather of conservatism was Edmund Burke, who was an English politician who was a Whig, which means he believed in progress, right? He was actually someone who thought, hey, the world's getting better. Like, we're doing a good job with civilization here. So that's just an interesting quirk. He just didn't want to change it too quickly. And he opposed the French Revolution at the time. So that's one thing from the sort of origin of conservatism. Uh, The other thing about the parties, I think, so it's interesting because as much respect as I have for our founding fathers, they were really blinkered when it came to political parties because 
we set up a system that was not designed for political parties. Like We're not a parliamentary system, which is much better equipped to deal with political parties. We have a president who gets elected and a Congress that gets elected, and you could have a president from one party and a Congress from the other, and they both think, hey, we got elected. Let's not do anything because the, you know, the population elected us, so we can just say no to you. And the president's like, wait, I got elected too, so I can say no to you. Uh, the, the founding fathers actually thought like there would be these disinterested elites who would kind of rule the country, and why would they form parties, right? One thing that I think is happening to our party system is the political parties themselves are losing power over their candidates. So this is something that's interesting. The primary system, which is where you vote for like the Democrats have theirs, the Republicans have theirs, it used to be the political party itself just picked their candidate. And usually what you would get is a kind of moderate candidate because you wanted somebody who could win the national election. And you would also pick somebody who was kind of a good politician, somebody who played the political game for a long time, you know, FDR or something in New York and work his way up. Uh, now you have elections and you basically only have Democrats electing Democrats, Republicans electing a Republican. And that almost is like it, it's boiling these things to a kind of purity so that each party is becoming more and more pure. And, and necessarily extreme, because if you want to win an election, let's say you want to win the primary and you're a Democrat, you have to appeal to Democrat voters, right? You're not appealing to the center or to Republican voters, and uh, likewise for the Republican Party. So, for example, if we had had this election in 1960, Donald Trump never would have made it, because the party would have been like, hell no, we're vetoing that. We want, like, Jeb Bush or, you know, John Kasich or something, so that definitely exacerbates partisanship because then what happens is you get what a, I'm going to butcher the name, whatever. It doesn't matter who said this. There's something called negative partisanship, which is basically, I hate the other group more than anything. So a lot of Republicans voted for Trump, not because they liked him, but because they hated Hillary more than they, they hated the idea of Trump. So you get this negative partisanship which just exacerbates the problem all the more. Yep. <laughs> Can you address kind of um, yeah. the first part of the question, just about the media exacerbating and boiling us down to A and B? You want to take your turn, or should I? What was the first part the of it? Media. How's the media playing a role? Oh, yeah. that's Well, the media is just a disaster now, right? I mean... It, <laughs> I I almost pine, as a conservative, I almost pine for the glory days of like Walter Cronkite when everyone would turn on the same news station and be like, yeah, this guy's telling it to us straight, you know? We, that's what I was talking about earlier about cultural divisions. We live in these bubbles in which we go home and we watch, I guess the left is what, MSNBC? We watch MSNBC or we watch Fox. And we listen to Republican radio or leftist radio or whatever. We don't have like the center dude who used to just like kind of everyone liked him. Maybe you disagreed with him here or there, but everyone was talking about the same one newscaster. Now we don't even, we live in like just completely different universes. So I have no, I don't like Fox at all, but as an experiment, I subjected myself to a week of Fox and it was truly staggering. And I think like, I know people who really believe everything that's coming up from Sean Hannity, right? 
And you can see if you just sort of tweak your brain and try to empathize why you get these people that believe these things when they're what that's the only source of information they have, right? The flow of information is essentially straight from the Trump party, which is what Fox has become. So yeah, that's another problem. And I put that's the sort of a cultural divide again. It's a, another cultural divide that drives us apart. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I guess to be fair to Fox, which is not something I say that often, <laughs> they weren't really pro-Trump until after the election. Right. And then they're like, okay, I guess we have to work with this guy. Um, yeah, I think the media is a big problem, and I think the party system is a problem. I don't know if it's as big. Uh, so one thing that you get as a Canadian watching the American political system is very confused and mystified why anything happens the way it does. So I, I see that especially the primary system that Bo was talking about as this incredible bait and switch where step one, find the most extreme candidate for your team. Step two, watch them pivot to the middle to get the middle voters. Right. And it's just like, why are we so in Canada and Britain and Germany and most other democratic nations, what you do is you elect a party leader like sometime three or five years before the election. And then they just are the party leader, period. And then you have an election one day, maybe five years later. And so you've seen this person in power for five years, not like in power as the prime minister, but maybe the leader of the opposition. Right. And so you see them acting and reacting to other people's policies. You see the statements they say for years. You see them acting in a governmental way. And then you think, okay, now do I actually want to vote for this person? And you have a sense of what their policies are. Usually the leader of a party, and we have, by the way, we have like three or five major political parties, unlike America. Right. And you get a sense like the leader is usually somewhere in the middle of what their party believes. So we have some people who are a little more on the left and some are more centrist and some are more on the right. And you have a pretty clear sense of what this person's about. And you don't get any of these surprise candidates like a, I don't think a Donald Trump would ever happen in Canada. I don't think our system can make that happen. But I think a worse problem, far worse, is the media. And I know they have good intentions, most of them, but I don't think it's working well. And I think it's getting worse. And I think part of the problem is something like Fox News. I think there's these dedicated platforms and it's not that they have an opinion that I don't agree with. I think that's fine. If you want to have other opinions, what gets me really upset when I watch Fox News or listen to Fox News or Fox News Radio, or whatever, is that there's a lot of dishonesty about what's happening, what they're saying. They're intentionally misleading people with the phrasing they use, with the headlines they use. They, they tend to make things exaggerated. And I know other people do this as well. It's not just Fox News that does this. But it seems to me that Fox does this considerably more than many other media organizations. It's definitely a problem that many, many media scape people are moving towards. And you see new variations of it, like Breitbart News. Or uh, on the left, you see examples of this as well. Some pretty extreme left-wing platforms that have really taken partisanship to just this, like, our side won, their side lost. Oh, like, it's just this back-and-forth boxing match. And what we've lost sight of is that the point of having any policy or any president or any one in power is to make society better, or at least not make it worse. And so if to the degree that Donald Trump can enact policies that make your life better and my life better, I don't have to like him or agree with him, but I can say that policy is not the worst policy. I think we should try and judge our politicians more based on what they're actually doing. 
And I worry there's so much distraction over like, oh, some memo has been released. And then these people say it's good. And these people say it's bad. And the, all this. But really, meanwhile, there's all these subtle policy changes. There's changes to the head of organizations. There's changes to the direction of like, what kind of immigration should we do? What are we doing at the FBI? There's all these low-level things that are passing under the radar because of the media circus of around what somebody tweeted or didn't tweet. Um, to get to the, I wanted to comment on, because I think confirmation bias exacerbates the media problem. Will you ex- explain just Okay, so confirmation, I, it's really actually kind of hard to explain because it's, it encompasses a lot of different biases. Basically, selective exposure, that is, you read things with which you agree and you avoid things with which you disagree. Uh, motivated skepticism, that is, when you do finally read that article you disagree with, you don't like it. You're motivated to find something wrong with it. And what I've called motivated credulity, I don't know if somebody else came up with that term, but that is, when you read something with which you agree, you're just like, yeah, of course that's right. And you don't challenge it at all. I think the selective exposure part of this is is very problematic because so there was actually this study that just came out not too long ago that found that reading something with which you agree causes like a pleasure uh, response in your brain. So it feel it's it's almost like an addictive drug. It feels good to read something with which you agree. And that is why people read things that with which they already agree and they don't expose themselves to things with which they disagree, which I find I, I understand why it happens, but it's actually the exact opposite of what you would want to do if your goal is to arrive at the truth, right? Because what you should do is say, well, I think we should spend more money on education. I'm going to read everything that challenges that belief. I'm going to see if that belief holds up to serious scrutiny. So one thing that I started doing just for a little biographical detail, when I was, I don't know, 27 or something, I started, that's the first time I started consciously really exposing myself to modern conservative thought. I started listening to modern conservative podcasts. I started reading their magazines, listening to people, finding the ones I thought were intelligent. And it really changed my mind on a lot of issues. And I, it's one of my biggest goals as a, as a teacher at, at Florida State is I try to say, go home and read something with which you disagree today. If you don't do anything else, find an article with which you disagree and read it sympathetically. Or another thing you can do is, Pretend you believe something for a week and defend it. I've tried to do this before. It's like on abortion or something. Pretend you agree with the other side, quote unquote, other side, and defend it as well as you can. It's a very useful exercise and it's very helpful. Now, because it's so unpleasant to read things with which we disagree, it's just you get that, you know, that visceral, oh, what are these people saying? You know, it's like when somebody likes The Last Jedi, which I thought was a terrible movie, I read it and I'm like, what are these people talking about? You know, so I understand that it's really hard, but it's something that I think we need to talk about more. And to his credit, John Kasich has been saying this, like read something for 15 minutes a day with which you disagree. And I think that's just super advice. Two quick things. First of all, it wasn't so bad. The Last Jedi. 
But second of all, I actually really question that advice, Bo. In our era of fake news, fake news, it's all fake news, oh, I don't like the opinions, fake news. It's too easy now to dismiss something that you don't agree with as simply manufactured. And I, I worry about most people's ability to do a decent job figuring out I mean, I don't think it's the people in this room I need to worry about. When I think of the 300-odd million people in American society, not everyone is well-equipped to do a good job of telling what is fake news from what isn't, from knowing what opinions to believe. And as a psychologist, one thing I really worry about is, what is the psychology of knowing whether you're right or not? How do people know when they hold an opinion that's accurate? And how do people know when they hold an opinion that isn't accurate? And you talked about Walter Cronkite. Right. So back in the day, it was easier to have a sense of whether you were on track or not, because one of the primary ways people know is they have an opinion that other people they like and respect agree with them. Right. If you think something's correct and you know a lot of people who are smart and decent human beings and they agree with you, then you can think, ah, see, I'm on the right track. But what's happened is back in the 60s or 80s, whatever, you had Walter Cronkite on TV. Most Americans had like three channels. And so there was only a very limited scope of what was the normal thing to think, what was the correct thing to think. And if you had some alternative position that was way outside the normal bounds of conversation, who could agree with you? Not many people in your daily life. And so you went feeling like, oh, my opinion is unusual. Maybe I'm, maybe I got to rethink that. And what's happened is in the era of the internet, anyone, anywhere with the weirdest off color opinions suddenly has a community of thousands and thousands of people who agree with them. And definitely there's some things for which that's really great. You know, Dungeons and Dragons isn't the social pariah thing that it used to be because it turns out on the internet, everyone's a nerd. Right. But, but it also means if you were, uh, I mean, so uh, somebody was telling me they're driving around recently and they saw someone with a bumper sticker that said proud anti-Semite. Proud. Right. And how could the person come to believe that pride was the right adjective there? And my guess is they found some people, maybe on the internet, who agreed with them. They read some things that, that, that sat, that suited them. And here's the thing. When that group gets together and they read the other side, like the Holocaust was real. Many people were hurt. It was bad. They can get together as a group and say, fake news, fake news. Those people don't mean anything. And so reading something you don't agree with can actually maybe induce this cognitive state of, oh, I don't have to pay attention to anything I'm reading because it's all wrong to begin with. So maybe if you have the right philosophy. No, that's absolutely an excellent point. So what what I think you should do is pick somebody from the quote-unquote other side whom you would be friends with out in the world, somebody you would like, right? Because then you're going to at least listen to the person. I do think you're exactly right. It's a problem is what people often do is they read some article with which they disagree and they're like, oh, that's stupid. I knew it just confirms confirmation bias. It just confirms what I already knew. They're stupid. So for me, one of the things was, and I can't recommend this podcast enough, there's a podcast called Econ Talk with Russ Roberts, and he's kind of like a libertarian type guy, and I'm economically pretty liberal. But he's a very likable person with whom I would like to hang out and have conversations. And therefore, I listen to him. I disagree with him about 90% of what he says, but he's changed my opinion a little bit. And I think that's what you got to do is find somebody you could be friends with. That that helps you take their opinion seriously. Good point. And I would, I would say, I mean, just over my own trajectory, that although a large 
large portion of Americans may not have the capacity in whatever in, in whatever way that means. It could even be access to the internet, access to podcasts, ability to have Audible or you know iTunes podcasts or something like that. That for me was a social work class where a professor curated perspectives on both sides. Now, it wasn't a Huffington Post article and then one by a conservative scholar. So what you said about the quality of whatever it is that you're reading, and that's what people will do is go to the low-hanging fruit of kind of crap stuff on the other side. And then that dopamine hits or that, you know, (laughs) oxytocin hits because they've read something that was, you know, virtually People magazine or something like that. But as someone who I would say is economically stable and who is educated, I, it's been critical for me to have people who have assisted with that. And then I would add to that, um, my brother, who I, I go to for a lot of things, intellectually speak, he comes to me for the emotional things, um, said to me, read what the international news says about America yeah. and that that's extremely helpful. But what I wanted to do was go into the reality of or what exactly is universal about human nature? We were talking about this, and you all have brought a couple of things up. But we talked on Monday a little bit about the idea of reason, intuition, and emotion. And some of what you all are saying about being able to absorb the other side has to do with your capacity. It has to do with critical thought. And, you know, a number of those things may, may be there for that. But it also has to do with your ability to reason, and how quickly your emotions jump into whatever it is that you're that you're thinking or reading about or hearing about. So I don't know if one of you wants to share about the elephant and the writer and that that perspective. Um, and then if not, that's okay. But just talking about emotion versus reason and how difficult that can be to kind of pull, or that you think that whole metaphor is ridiculous because I think that's what you were saying over my chips and guac. Pretty sure. I love it. I love. It. Okay. So this metaphor of the elephant and the rider does drive me a little crazy, but it's really supposed to be about reasoning and intuition. And the idea is intuition is the elephant and you're just the rider on the elephant. And so if your intuition or your gut level feelings or your emotions, if they trigger, then you're on a rampage. You're just on top of this rampaging elephant and there's really nothing you can do. And I find that a little demeaning for the average human being because, I mean, I think most of us are better than that. We definitely have these intuitions. Maybe it's more like a horse than an elephant. There's a closer correspondence to your power to influence how you think and feel about things than that metaphor allows for. In my own work, what I see in terms of reasoning and emotion and intuition and so on is that it seems like there's some people out there who are like very focused on reason alone. And they're sort of like, why is everyone so upset? This is a logic problem. Just like for immigration, just do whatever's logical. And they try and like figure out the math of the issue. And they don't resonate with people who are upset on either side of the debate because, like, I don't, I don't get why you're feeling. Just think about it, you fools, right? And I don't think that's the best way to be. There's other people who are who seem like they have these very rigid, dogmatic beliefs. There's one right way to think. It's this way, and if you don't think that way, shut up. You're wrong, and you're stupid, and I hate you, right? And so they're very like, they don't want to think. They want to know what's the right answer. Know that answer in your heart and never change. Don't even stop for a moment to think about the alternative because even thinking about the alternative is already this temptation down the wrong pathway. So just know what the right thing is, do that, and never think ever again. 
but I think it's also not the ideal way to go about this. I, I see another group of people, and it seems like they never started to think in the first place. So they're just like, wait, what's everyone talking about? Why are we, where's the pizza? Can I just... And so they're not engaged. They're just not engaged at all. But there's this fourth category. You might have been waiting for it. And this fourth category, I didn't expect this to work out this way. It just seems like this has emerged organically over the course of 20 or 30 studies on how people think about morality and, and life. And it seems like there's this group of people that are integrating emotion and reasoning. And they're integrating, it's not just any emotion, but they're integrated this compassionate concern for the well-being of other fellow human beings. And they're very moved by the pain that other people experience. They're more empathic and they're concerned. But it's not just this blind empathy, because we were talking about how empathy can be a weakness in some cases. If you're too focused on empathy, you might focus on the trees instead of the forest. That's not what these people are doing. They're taking their compassion and their concern for other people's well-being, and they're marrying that to this thoughtful consideration of how can we make the world better and what are some logical, thoughtful ways to make that happen. So another way to talk about this would be the marrying of agency and communion. That's what a colleague of mine, Larry Walker, up in Vancouver would say. So agency is this feeling of that you're a powerful actor with control over your life and influence over the way that this community develops and the way that you interact with other people. You have a power to build something. But also... You marry that with communion, this emotional connection to your fellow human beings and this desire to want to make their lives better. That seems to be – that combination seems to be the magic bullet if you want to get ethical behavior, positive behavior, pro-social behavior, charitable behavior, these kinds of good things. And I'm pretty sure it spills over into the political domain as well. I have nothing intelligent to add to that. <laughs> Well, do you I have win. any questions, I have, Liz? Yeah, I have, I have kind of a question to that point a little bit. From a chemist, science and technology have made our lives much less brutal than in the past because they are based on the way things actually are. Why can't we apply reason to our policy decisions? And actually, maybe an answer to that is, uh, is another question, which is, as psychologists who look at what's going on in the world right now, is there something that really bugs you that we don't understand about human nature, human nature 101, that you just wish we would? Uh, that first question is awesome because I want to belong to the empirical political party. I completely <laughs> agree. I think uh, my brother and I have been talking about writing a paper, maybe it'll turn into a book, called like The Flight from Uncertainty. And one thing I think causes a lot of the problems here is these are difficult empirical questions, right? And it's not pleasant to just say, you know what? I don't really know. Uh, like, take gun control. I don't have a clue. I've read a lot of the literature. It's a complicated issue. People want to have some sort of certain doctrine in which they can say, you know, whether it's the Constitution or whatever, in which they can say, yes, this is it. This is how we do it. You know, I don't need to grapple with the uncertainty in the universe. I just know that this is the right way. Um, it's not a, I tried to think about this. Centrism, pragmatism, I guess you'd call it, the empirical party. It's not sexy. It's really hard to sell. <laughs> I've been thinking about how can I make it sexy to say, I don't know the answer to that. We need to like do more studies and carefully examine the issue. It's just not appealing to people. It's a special, well, 
I was going to say it's especially not appealing to young people, but it's probably not appealing to anybody. But, you know, if you're a 20-year-old, you want to say, hey, we don't even know. We need to study it. You know, you can't really get riled up about that. So I totally agree with that. What was the second part? <laughs> what really I, I have a question. Me? There is a human nature. It bugs me that people deny that. How about that? <laughs> Somewhat related. I, I see reference... Uh, passing references over the last several months to scientific research. Can't cite it, I'm sorry. But it seems to be saying this in an oversimplified way. Some of us genetically are wired in a certain way in our brains and others in a different way, such that some individuals, when they encounter something novel or strange or different or other, react with fear uncertainty, etc. Others are wired such that when they encounter those same sort of different, unexpected things, they respond with curiosity and interest. And I don't know if this is an extrapolation of the research or if it's empirical, but some of the indications are that that first group tend to become conservatives. The second group become tend to become more liberal and further the conservatives tend to be less happy in life and the progressives happier. What do you make of that? Okay. So, I mean, there's definitely something to that, but we want to be careful with just these people are this, these people are this. The way I like to think about it, so there's some great research on rats and what happens when they meet a new situation. So imagine you were like a little rat or a little furry, fuzzy animal, right? And you end up in this big, wide world, and it's full of opportunities, but it's also full of risks. And what you have to do is you have to balance pursuing the possible food and petting that you're going to get from the friendly people out there with, could there be like a fox or a raccoon that might hurt me out there? I got to be careful. So everyone falls in this continuum somewhere when they meet new information or new situations where they're like, you start out more cautious and you eventually warm up and you kind of start, so you start trying to be careful and not uh, let things get away from you. And then you want to pursue the goals. And so it's a question of sort of how quickly do people warm up and what is their priority? Some people are like, oh, going to go find the food, no problem. But that's a riskier strategy. And so you're absolutely right. There's definitely work on research on liberals and conservatives. So liberals tend to be more open to experience. They tend to be more promotion focused. They're looking for the rewards. They want to seek out the future. They want to seek out the best options that are available. People who are more conservative tend to focus on not get carried away with just willy nilly searching for anything. They want to be careful about noting what they already have. And not wasting that. And so if you're safe and comfortable and happy already, do you really need to go out there and seek new things? Like, can't you just be content with what you've got? And uh, you can see biological differences in certain brain regions that are related to this kind of activity, like the HBA axis, the hypothalamic adrenal pituitary pathway. But it's too technical for what we're dealing with here. And I, I just want to say real quickly in terms of scientific research, it is easy when you, and, and this is not what you did, I'm not saying that at all, but when you read things that A, A or B comes out, particularly in the media, and so that simplification was there, and then and then you added a couple of layers to it that, that made it more nuanced. So the idea that it's not just, I'm scared of this, I don't want this, but that, that there's an evaluation oftentimes of risk there that is an important component 
when you're thinking about which side is which. So thank you for that. And Bo, you were about to say? I'm good for the next question. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Let me just extrapolate really quickly then. So if you think of something like immigration, the fact that there's these changing demographics in our society, by 2050, it's going to be a new demographic makeup in this country. I mean, that presents both opportunities and possibilities for growth. I mean, better foods and, and other things that, that we can come with having a different cultural makeup in your community. But it also comes with risks. There's the Bose concern about sort of society changing and how that like, are people going to assimilate correctly? Is the nature of American culture going to be different and different in a way that, that's not comfortable or, or happy for people? And so there's both opportunities and risks. And so depending on which one you focus on more, if some people focus more on the opportunities that can come from this and other people are more focused on the risks. And yeah, there's a liberal conservative tendency to focus more on one or the other. I would just congratulate Paul on the way he said that, which was excellent because you didn't make either side sound worse. And one thing I would say that I caution about academic literature on political identity is most, again, most of the people conducting this research are overwhelmingly liberal, like uh, 95 to 97% of social psychologists are liberals. And therefore, they tend to frame these things, not maliciously, just they tend to frame it as liberals are normal and we need to explain how the hell we get a conservative, right? Because their baseline is liberal, right? And then they're like, how did that happen that we got these weirdos out in the world? Let's study them. And I think one thing that's important is to recognize liberals and conservatives are both weird let's approach them that way and say how did you get that one and how did you get that one or whatever i mean again that's simplifying by dichotomizing but anyway just one word of caution although i think that literature that you cited is correct i'm not disputing that sure yeah just my one thing to add to that is that there's a lot of concern when you hear things like that like oh my goodness academia is full of liberals those cultural elites the way that uh bo said it which i take great offense to that sort of terminology we can come back to that. But if you go to economics, their default assumption is that normal people are conservative and those liberals are weird people who don't get what economics is. Right. And so different aspects of academia have different leanings. And I think I overall, don't think that's actually accurate. I think what? I think if you if you look at economics professors, they tend to vote Democrat. Okay, so voting Democrat is one thing, and identifying is uh, fair enough. Okay, fair enough. You could say there's a relative. Difference. They're not communists for right. sure. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe we can maybe we can digress for a second, come back to this word elite. So when you use this term elite, which you did at the very beginning, and so you sort of talked about professors and really well educated people and this crowd, you know, I don't think that's the correct term, the correct usage of the word elite. And when I listen to say Fox News or whatever, they're using this term like that a lot and it enrages me because what I really see is like I mean, I drive a Toyota Yaris, not to brag, right? It's 2007, okay? So maybe I'm an elite in the sense that I've been in university most of my life. I mean, I've had to work pretty hard to get to where I'm at. But yes, I'm here. I'm in this room full of pretty hyper-educated people. And in that respect, I think we are elite. But I will never make one-tenth of one percent of the money that the Koch brothers make or Mitt Romney and his family or the Rothschild banking family, or the Bush family, or the Clinton family, or the Obama family, or the Trump family. There are real elites out there, people who make billions of dollars. And again, income is not the correct. It's like stock options and who owns what hotels. They're most of the wealth. Okay, 
two-thirds of the wealth in this country is owned by the top 5% of people. So there is an elite out there. It's just not really us, unless you own all the hotels in Tallahassee, right? But, but what the real elites, I think, are rarely in this room. And I think liberals and conservatives, there's real pain and suffering if you go to, like, Virginia, West Virginia, and the coal mining towns and so on. There's a lot of people who are very upset. There's a lot of, if you go, you know, to Frenchtown. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are upset there. There's a lot of people who are getting, frankly, they're getting fucked over by the system, right? And there's some people who are making hundreds of billions of dollars. And there's many people who have to work three jobs and they're working 50 hours a week and they can barely make their rent. And, oh, great, they got like a $1 raise. So that's, that's good. I mean, it's progress in the right direction. But the system has been squeezing the little guy and squeezing and squeezing since the 60s. On average, no one in this room is any wealthier than they would have been in the 60s. No one's making any more money, but someone like Mitt Romney or like these really powerful people, they're hundreds and thousands of times wealthier than they would have been in the 60s. There's way more wealth today in this country than there's ever been in the history of human endeavors. We are living in the wealthiest time of all of human history. Okay, we're the wealthiest nation in history, and yet most of us are suffering, right? It's because that wealth is largely going to a privileged few, the real elite, and that friction is causing us tension, which is causing us to blame each other instead of blame who we should be blaming. And I'll, I'll say, I'm so sorry, we want to get to one or two more Actually, questions because we're almost out of time. two quick questions, and then we right. also have a comment and question from your dad, which you have to answer, Right. In, in the entire One discussion, I did not once hear the word truth. Could you comment on where truth fits in all this? And you can think about that while I queue up the other two really quickly and you guys Sorry, can one more time? True. Where truth. does truth, truth fit in? Where does fit, truth fit in? But just hold it. Think about it. Think about your wise answer. Okay. Well, speaking of truth, um, that kind of brings me to what I was uh, interested in. I'm interested in all of it. But one thing that um, I sort of picked up on... We're talking about fake news, and I think part of the problem is when Uncle Uncle Walter and David and Chet were doing the news, it was news. I mean, it was, you know, um, objective, and then there was commentary and analysis, and they were, it was like never the twain shall meet. You know, analysis must be labeled as such, and you barely had those on real news programs. Now, you can't tell where one starts and the other leaves off. CNN. It's just one long commentary. And occasionally they'll throw in, oh yeah, there's a breaking news thing. But even when they do the news, it's all commentary or all analysis. So it's hard to tell the actual news from the commentary. And in which case, how do you, it's, it's easy to mix up. What is the facts? I, uh, let me answer that and then go to what Paul said really quickly about elites, because I vehemently disagree with that so yeah i think again as i said i want to belong to a party of people who are empiricists we want to know what's true and i think it's really difficult and most of the time you have to end up saying you don't know so we just don't like again gun control because i think that's an issue that's really complex we just don't know what the truth is and it's it's not going to be a popular you're not going to sell this to people who have money to give to your party. Hey, we're the party of we don't know what you should do about gun control. It's hard to support that, right? So I I think it's like 
obviously some things are so obviously true that they're undeniable, but I, I do think to some degree politics and truth have always had a frictional relationship and that's unfortunate and I think that's why it's important for people who are outside of politics to hold politicians' feet to the fire about what is true because people who are outside of it can per pursue the truth. I think that same thing goes to the point about CNN and fake news or whatever. It, it, it's an excellent point, which is there's just a lot more commentary than there used to be. It's almost an endless stream of commentary to like one fact that happened, right? Yeah, I don't know what to do. I don't have a good solution there. Let me go to this elite thing, though, because I do want to make this point. I really do think one of the huge disagreements I have with Paul is his emphasis on income or wealth or whatever you want to call it. I just don't think that's – somebody can have – like, so, for example, Steven Pinker, John Hyatt, etc. These people don't have a ton of wealth. They're certainly richer than I am, but they're not – anywhere near the Koch brothers or anyone up there, yet they will do more to shape opinion in our country no. than, 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 like, say, my uncle who, like, he's probably a millionaire, he owns a car's sure. uh, used car lot, right? But not so, more than the Koch brothers. No, that's a little bit different, but, I mean, I just don't think income is how... how I'm talking elite by educated people who promote ideas and are basically the, the narrative shapers of our society, whether those be Hollywood writers, TV writers, news producers, or academics and other intelligent people. That's what I would classify as the elite. So you would classify Sean Hannity as an elite? Absolutely. Right? I don't have a problem. Absolutely. With, I don't have a problem with that because what I think is that the reason Sean Hannity might be considered an elite is because the Koch brothers have been funding that organization. It's really it's not it's not Sean Hannity himself. It's the money behind him. And it's the same thing as the money behind the donors to the parties. It's the money behind it's the money equals speech. I really speech wish this would have come up earlier uh, because <laughs> actually <laughs> My most sort of controversial opinion, perhaps, is that money in politics is actually good. Oh but I'm gosh. not going to be able to defend that, so I won't. Okay. Well, I think I think we're pretty much out of time. And again, they are friends, and I think Bo had mentioned this, and, and they this is something that they agree on, is that if you have a relationship with someone, that framework is going to be beneficial if you were going to have these types of disagreements. And so I really appreciate that. They had a couple of threads there in terms of, I bet these people care about humans too. I really liked that phrase. And the idea that others are coming from a very specific moral place and have strong motivations based on their care for humans about why they believe what they believe. And if we can move through that process of thinking about that, uh, when we're hearing other perspectives that might help a little bit. And again, we use, word, we use words like vehemently disagree with one another. Um, there are interruptions and so on. Again, they, they, do this, they do this all the time. That is possible and I think it's just a beautiful representation of American democracy is that they are doing this type of thing and it's quite possible for all of us to and I'm sure many of you already do so we really appreciate you all being here this evening can you please give Bo and Paul a round of applause hi again it's Vanessa here your podcast host let's hear it for Dr. Paul Conway and Dr. Bo Weingard 
and Jovita Woodrich for showing us how much fun a respectful civil debate can be. Of course, there was lots of disagreement, but also they're clearly not afraid to agree sometimes. And I even heard an apology in there over a possible misunderstanding. And I heard several compliments. And I heard Bo acknowledge that his opinions may change. All of this is excellent. This is the way you do civil debate. I personally get so much out of our debate style programs because I've realized I can be sort of a Kool-Aid drinker when I'm listening to someone who seems really smart and they seem to have solid values and they're making strong logical arguments. I often find myself easily convinced. So being able to consider different perspectives from multiple smart, reasonable people sort of forces me to think more about what I'm hearing and then make my own decisions about where I land. So much of what we consume these days is very one-sided and often there's an agenda involved, which makes the whole situation more complicated and less authentic. Well, I don't think we can accuse Bo or Paul or Jovita of not being authentic. So here's to them. Well done, you guys. I also loved how Dr. Jonathan Haidt was mentioned several times in this program. He's one of our favorites and also a past guest. You can check him out in episode 10, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And soon he will be your academic crush too. I'm with Jovita. He is dreamy intellectually. But to keep this debate thing going on just a minute, I'd love to respond real quick to what Paul said about Dr. Height. I've read one and a third of Dr. Height's books, and of course, listened to our Village Square program featuring him. And, you know, I don't feel like he's saying that we're in a hopeless no-win situation. I think he's saying that, you know, here are some things that we need to understand about how humans work. Some things are just human nature, so let's accept that that's how we are. But now that we know it, we can use that understanding to find better ways of relating to each other and sorting things out and making progress. I was actually far more hopeful after diving into his work. But hey, you can all decide for yourselves. Check out episode 10 to hear directly from Dr. Jonathan Haidt. And here's another episode you might want to check out because it features Bo's wife, Corey Clark, before they were married. Corey was a really fun guest and it was an awesome program. It's episode 33, Your Brain on Tribal Media. And now after both these programs, I just want to sit around a dinner table with Bo and Corey and hear them talk. I'd love to hear them debate, actually. All right. We'd like to offer our sincere thanks to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free, which is airing right here on Village Squarecast through the end of the year. Also, thanks to Brian Deloge and Lee Hinkle for helping to make these programs possible through their generous donations. Please subscribe to Village Squarecast wherever you listen to podcasts. And to stay up to date with all that's happening at the Village Square, subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to 
order, chaos, and homo sapiens. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.